Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Collective Disruption, how corporations and startups can co-create transformative new businesses. And I've got Michael Doherty with me today. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Bob. Great to be here. It's a very interesting book because it, it kind of takes the two things that are happening these days with large organizations that are, you know, rocking it and, and trundling along like these juggernauts that have a hard time moving. And then these really small startups that seem to be popping up every couple of days and by working together, help out where they're weak. So that's basically the premise of the book. How do you develop the relationship between those two totally diverse and, and kind of like opposite creatures in the business world? Well, I think you put that well, actually, because uh, they, they are, um, uh, you know, very different animals in a lot of ways, but uh, they, they need each other like never before. Uh, and I've lived it both in the startup world and in the corporate world. And, and, I, and it's really a, something I'm passionate about because I, I see so much opportunity for corporates and startups to, to uh, basically get the best of both and, uh, to, you know, to do more by, by finding ways to work, to work together. Uh, but but there are very different cultures and very different mindsets. Uh, even though some people may, may move, move back and forth, you have the organizational um, kind of momentum, if you will, that uh, that uh, really prevents these companies from working together well. Uh, and I would say that the number one um, one of the reasons it's not as hard as it used to be to bring these folks together is because there's never been more of a need. Um, large companies, like never before, are recognizing that they can't um, make it on their own, that, that there's too much innovation happening outside of their walls, and that uh, they need to get into the flow of these uh, innovations that uh, startups and other entrepreneurs can bring to the table. So uh, the motivation is a big, big part of it. Yet um, what a, a lot of companies are still doing is more or less going through the motions and um, not necessarily doing it in ways that are, that are driving real outcomes. Um, conversely, startups are... Uh, uh, you know, getting funded like never before, and, and quite frankly, you don't need much funding to create a startup these days. It's, it's a it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Um, yet there is a need there in that many startups are, uh, especially early stage startups, are struggling to cross that chasm between um, early stage kind of pre revenue seed investment or or friends and family money and uh, true venture capital funding uh, at a substantial rate for 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 growing a startup. And so both of them really kind of need each other like never before. And um, uh, the, the real key is, uh, you know, finding ways to engage at the right time in the right ways. And that's a lot of what I talk about in the book. You know, I, I've noticed um, also there's some organizations out there that are, are, are basically putting the angel investors together. And those organizations are uh, actively inviting startups and, and people that are looking for secondary funding and, and, and you know, just to, to get to the next phase in, in their uh, endeavors and are pitching these guys in almost like a Shark Tank style environment um, in hotels all over North America. And uh, for me, I didn't even know this existed until a couple of months ago. Do you think that adaptation of this new way of doing business 
is um, kind of coming to the forefront as 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 an important new uh, business avenue? Well, I think the uh, the idea of bringing together startups and pitching to uh, investors has been around for a while. I think you know there there are always different formats to that, but the idea of uh, you know investor groups, angel groups. Um, wanting to efficiently review um, not just the technologies but the people behind them and, and that's one of the great things about it being a live event. Um, that's been around for a while. Um, what, what I do think is new is, is corporates getting into that where um, either accelerators or groups that bring those groups together are partnering with corporations to have them be part of the Shark Tank or panel or in many cases um, actually corporations um, structuring similar programs on their own so that startups now have uh, a different avenue, not just, not just um, partnering, or I should say pitching to uh, angel or investor groups, but also pitching directly to corporations. Uh, we, we actually have done a number of uh, sessions that we called innovation speed dating, where we would bring together uh, large companies, and many of them competitors, and a group of seven or eight startups and uh, run them through a speed dating format where they would spend about uh, seven minutes at a table for a first date. And then everyone um, uh, assesses uh, who they like and then they get into a longer second date. And the, uh, the metaphor of dating is a great one because going back to your point of uh, you know, being very different, uh, you really have to break down barriers and build a little bit of trust early on. And there's so, some, something magical that happens when you sit across the table from someone uh, who may have a very different background, but uh, you're, you, you still recognize this is about connecting people. And uh, it, it was a, a phenomenal process, uh, uh, not just for breaking down those barriers, but also for leveling the playing field so that the, the corporations understood that if they didn't pursue an opportunity, um, one of the other corporations might, and that the, the uh, startups are recognizing that uh, corporations now need them as much as they need the uh, corporations. It's almost revolutionary what's happening is is to get larger organizations to realize that, oh my goodness, we need that innovation and we cannot hire that innovation anymore. We actually have to go outside of our shop and chat with people and say, look at, you know, we love what you're doing. Would you want to work with us? And then having those organizations not be freaked out and saying, nah, you're just going to steal our stuff and run away with it. That's a huge paradigm shift. And I had no idea until this book that this was happening. You know, if you go back, say, 10 or 12 years, um, th there's a trend that's been taking hold over that period of time called open innovation, which uh, Henry Chesborough, an academic, wrote a book a while back. Um, Procter & Gamble and some other major corporations um, kind of spearheaded the effort of, of recognizing that um, their R&D needed to include more than the people who worked for the company. And open innovation has really uh, taken hold in a big way in the past 10 years. It's gone from most companies being afraid to do this to... Uh, many of them uh, recognizing that, that if they aren't doing it, they're going to be left behind. So what's changed in the past 10 years there is, is that open innovation trend. And, and look, partnering has been around forever, right? So the idea of companies partnering with each other isn't a new concept. I think what the open innovation trend brought to the forefront is um, doing that as a stated strategy and, and having the infrastructure and the tools to do it well. So the 10 years that this has been underway has brought on board a number of different intermediary marketplaces, software tools, a lot of different ways where for a corporate R&D or, or new product executive, um, in a lot of ways that startup world is at your fingertips uh, through, um, through a variety of sources um, 
and it really has taken hold. Now, where my book tries to pick up from is that that trend is there, but if you look at what many of these large companies are doing, the focus is still on finding um, quick hits, uh, you know, new colors, new ingredients, new features for the core business. And where the real um, opportunity is, is not to stop doing that, but, um, you know, innovations change. What we used to call innovation is now just what it takes to stay in place. And, and for companies to keep growing, they need more than just uh, incremental uh, or, or refreshment of the core business lines. They need to re basically recreate themselves time and time again. They need to create whole new um, business lines and whole new sources of growth. And that really means that they need to find ways to partner with startups and entrepreneurs in a new way. Instead of just licensing or acquiring a technology, this is about co-creating whole new businesses together with startups. And that's really what, uh, what I'm highlighting in the book is companies that are learning to do that well and um, some of the um, important approaches to, uh, to that. Because as you can imagine, you know, just connecting to startups is challenging enough. Now the idea of actually co-creating something with them uh, is even more challenging, but it, it, it absolutely is the future. Hmm. You, you mentioned the word quick, and uh, to, to clarify that, how fast is quick? Well, obviously that depends on the, on the category, right? Um, so uh, I work in uh, pharmaceutical and the health industry, so quick to them might be three to five years versus a seven to eight year life cycle or, or uh, you know, development cycle. Um, but if you start looking at uh, fat, even fast-moving consumer goods and, and, and certainly technology industries, I do a lot of work with Cisco, uh, you know, one year is a short period of time. Uh, I'll give you a quick example of, of this in action. Um, Cisco actually, as, as innovative as they are, they recognize that they've got to be working with people on the outside as well. And uh, in one case, they wanted to get into uh, an area called unified computing systems. And uh, to do that, they actually seed, uh, seeded three ex-employees to start that business with them. I don't have the figures in front of me, but it was something like 70 to $75 million they provided to them. Um, they weren't employees, but um, were friends of the company, had done work with them before. And within about two years, they developed this whole new business that Cisco then acquired back for um, 300 to 400 million, I think it was 350. And so um, at one level you say, uh, boy, that, they move fast, uh, and probably faster than Cisco could have alone. But um, you can also say, well, boy, they've put out a lot of money versus just doing it themselves. And, you know, what do you, why do you think they did it that way? Mm. Well, um, I'm curious, you know, they've got, they've invested, Cisco invests uh, in, in some people that they have a, a pre-existing relationship with. They build up a product, they build up a company, they bring, the, they bring in the, uh, the talent, they train the talent, get everybody focused, and then voila, they launch. And then Cisco, why did, did they get a discounted uh, price because of their relationship with these guys and they helped that thing happen? Or is it they were the only one that were allowed to bid and then if they didn't like it, then that uh, that offshoot company had the option to go out and get funding bought out by somebody else? Is that how well, they structured? Well, and I don't know the details of whether they had other options. Um, but, I, but I do know that uh, they were the primary investor and, and basically it was more or less reverse engineering the startup. So some, from the very beginning, the intention was for Cisco to buy it. Um, I, I would very much um, be surprised if, if the entrepreneurs didn't have a plan B, if Cisco didn't move forward with it. Uh, they're smart people. 
but the real, you know, the plan A was for Cisco to invest in it, but to, to do it independently such that um, uh, if it turned out the way Cisco wanted it to, they would buy it back. And, and it ended up turning into a, 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 you know, a more than a billion dollar business for Cisco very quickly. And I think it, it, it just highlights this idea that um, large companies, even ones as innovative as Cisco, can't move fast enough when it comes to um, whole new sources of growth and entering new markets. And finding creative ways like that, that's not the only model, but finding creative ways like that in order to partner with startups and entrepreneurs to help you um, enter new markets and create new business opportunities and doing it in a way where there's a shared risk. So sometimes that's direct investment. Um, I'll give you an example where it's not direct investment. Johnson & Johnson has uh, four global innovation centers that uh, I also talk about this in the book where they, they, uh, they identify um, serial scientists, you know, entrepreneurs who have uh, a track record of successful scientific invention. And uh, in some cases, they'll take the ideas to the scientists. In others, the scientists will bring the ideas to them. But before they even have a startup, um, J&J, in many cases, will co-locate these scientists in the J&J facility alongside Johnson & Johnson's own scientists and business experts in order to define that opportunity um, and doing it in a way that doesn't even give J&J a guarantee that they get the idea. So um, very often it does result in an equity investment, but I think it really demonstrates J&J's um, foresight and recognizing that they need to get in the flow of these ideas. They need to create really early relationships with smart uh, scientists and entrepreneurs so that um, on the whole, they're going to get a preferred relationship and early access to big ideas instead of, um, because you could make the argument, well, let's just wait until the startups do their thing and then we'll buy them. You can do that, but you pay too much and you end up getting something that isn't quite right for what you want. So why not, when you can, partner with a, a group of startups, um, have them more or less reverse engineer for you, and uh, have them share some of the risk with you so that you both win. And, and that's really the trend that, uh, that I'm seeing and, and, and helping companies uh, try to find a way to do. Well, it seems to me like a really, really good win-win uh, scenario. I mean, you've got the, the whole thing. One of my questions is like, well, how do you trust these guys? You go and you do a thing, they kick you out, they steal your idea, they develop them themselves. That's going to be, you know, with all people that I talk to that have the new biggest, best thing, they're terrified that someone's going to swoop in and either duplicate their concept before they go to market or um, steal the idea. And I would say nine times out of ten, that that's a little on the delusional side because the they're not going to steal your idea because it's so hard to get funding. So if you have a, a, a corporation that's willing to have a relationship with you and provide either resources or money or a combination of those two to help you move forward rapidly, that gives you tremendous, tremendous market advantage. Plus, if you've got a built-in client at the end of the game, it's almost like a, a dream scenario for, for people that are innovators. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right, and there's a couple of points that you raise in there that, that I want to address. One is, um, you know, it's not right for everyone, at, at, and it depends on the time. And, and the other being that, yes, it's a dream scenario when it when it uh, when it works out well. It doesn't always work out. I do think that um, the fear of losing your idea or feel as fear of someone stealing your idea, and the fears on both sides, quite True. frankly, yeah, yeah. that it it. 
you know, I've been working in this space for 15 years and I can count on one hand the number of times that's happened. So, so it, it really is more perception than reality. Um, but that said, you know, you have to be prudent. Um, and, and in the book, I talk about um, kind of a tiered approach to um, engaging with each other so that you're walking before you run. So as an example, when we did those speed dating events, we would have these companies and startups meet without even signing a non-disclosure intentionally because we didn't want anyone revealing confidential information and going through that effort of, uh, you know, signing agreements that, that actually often prevent you from even having a casual conversation about, is there a, a there there? So you can go from a, you know, a, a, a non-confidential discussion to getting under an NDA and going a little deeper to um, material supply agreements to look at samples to teaming agreements where you do some things together, but you don't co-invent to finally co-development where you're co-inventing together. So as you get better and more experienced and trusting, you kind of work your way up to this co-development. You don't start it overnight, but uh, all that said, um, you know, you need to be cautious, but uh, you know, the math has changed that, that yes, there are some risks there, but the benefits um, so outweigh the risks these days that uh, you need to find a way. And, and, and most of these companies and many startups are. Well, you know, like, like with everything these days, everything seems to be very disruptive. And to me, this seems like an incredibly uh, disruptive way of doing something that has been going on forever, like literally forever. Um, and it could really speed up the whole process of um, developing very dynamic ideas. And then in its, that in itself will disrupt the industry that you're creating those ideas and, and uh, products for. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have the word disruption in the title of my book, uh, partly because that's a catchier title than collective transformation. <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about that word disrupt is, uh, and disruption is, uh, it, it means different things to different people, doesn't it? So, so you know, if you're a startup, you tend to think of, uh, you know, disruption as something you do to the big guys. And if you, if you look at um, large companies, you tend to think of disruption as this is what other people do to me and, and what you don't want to ha have happen to you. So, so um, I, I think of this as... Um, you know, this is an opportunity for corporations and startups to transform industries. And that's why I like that word, because it's more about building something together than tearing something down. Um, no doubt, you, you know, it is about changing a market and changing the basis of competition. Um, but, but I really do believe that, uh, um, just as you said, that, that you know, this is a, a, a very big opportunity for corporations and startups to do more together than they could uh, separately. And if you start to think about what that means to the corporations of the world, um, you know, moving forward, not only not only is it a question of you, you know you need to get on board with doing this because um, if you aren't, you're going to be left behind, but it also even changes the definition of what's a corporation. Uh, you know, I really do think, and I'm seeing it already, that the lines are blurring between what's the corporate um, team and what's the ecosystem, the the, the partners on the outside. Um, and I do think that uh, companies um, are increasingly needing to define themselves, not just by the people who work for them, but by the people who work with them. Um, I, I often say that uh, competitive advantage these days isn't about who has the best technology. It's about who has the best relationships. So, so corporations um, and startups really are, 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 you know, it's all about what networks can you build so that uh, you've got the right partners that come together at the right time to uh, to do great work and then go you know go apart and come back together when it makes sense again. 
do you think this is more of a global thing that's happening, or is it it's more um, first world centric, or is it just a North American phenomenon? A great question. Um, it, it, not a simple answer there. Um, it, definitely not just a North America phenomenon at all. Um, uh, you know, I would say the, the developed um, countries and regions are most advanced here. And if you look at you know the innovation centers like um, Silicon Valley and, and in the U.S., Boston and San Diego and others, um, you know, we have similar um, geographic centers of innovation in Tel Aviv, in London, um, in um, Berlin. Uh, increasingly in places like Warsaw and Shanghai. So we're finding those um, centers of innovation, especially around uh, certain areas. So as an example, I, I do a fair amount of work in the Internet of Things, and Warsaw is actually um, becoming, and Poland in general, becoming quite a center for um, Internet of Things um, technologies. In fact, they have a place called Beacon Valley, and Beacon is one of those IoT technology uh, platforms. So, you know, it's happening globally, um, but, it's, but it's happening in different ways globally, in part because of the cultures. Uh, there's a lot more public and government involvement in the work that's going on in Europe in this area. A lot of uh, government uh, and uh, institutionally funded activities to try to bring companies, startups together there. Um, yet I think it's happening more organically in the U.S. And, and I think, you know, if you look at the successes, I think there's probably more success stories in the U.S., than anywhere else. You look at somewhere like Asia, and particularly China, and, and, uh, and, and to a second, uh, secondary degree, Japan and India and other countries in that region, um, especially in China, there, there really is a, uh, a fear of this kind of transactional um, partnering, you know, this kind of um, very open and porous um, melding of ideas and capabilities. Uh, the Chinese are, are much more open to close networks and, uh, you know, limited um, partnering. So it's taking a different form there where it's not as, as widespread, but you do have some co-development going on. And then you look at places like India that are innovating at a very, very low cost for that, those markets, and uh, you, you start to see this reverse innovation happening where those low-end opportunities and innovations are actually being brought back to the developed countries and being um, morphed into um, different innovations that could be scaled in a bigger way. So it's, it's, uh, it's exciting because it's happening in so many different ways around the world. Hmm. We delved quite deep into uh, technological um, stuff in that last comment. I just wanted to go back a little bit. You said uh, Internet of Things. Would you classify that as Web3? I think of the Internet of Things as uh, a subset of, you know, the buzzword for this is digital transformation. Mark Anderson talks about software eating the world, that, that basically companies are becoming software companies and need to be software companies um, and, and Internet-based companies, not just to automate their processes, but it's, you know, it's becoming increasingly um, a core part of the business process. So companies need to learn how to do that. The Internet of Things is a term specifically around embedding intelligence into the physical world. You know, the, the most common applications that are all the wearables you hear about from Fitbit and others that uh, transmit your body parameters to and save that for you to review and, and uh, work with later. But the real action is happening in more in the industrial space. GE and Cisco and others are recognizing the importance of machine-to-machine um, -machine intelligence. So Caterpillar makes uh, bulldozers and earth movers and are finding ways to embed sensors in those products so that 
they can do preventive maintenance for their customers and uh, ensure that those those uh, bulldozers um, have improved uptime and are always there on the job. GE uses um, Internet of Things technology in their locomotives and other equipment um, as a way to uh, provide insights into how the machines are working as well as um, leveraging the data into ways to draw insights from. And, and, and that's really one of the, the challenges of the Internet of Things is all these connected devices are creating all this data and what do we do with it all? Um, here come the startups. A lot of uh, really creative startups are, are coming on board that are working on things like predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to help companies make sense of all that data to basically not get mired in it, but to focus on the data that matters and draw the right insights from it. Yeah, I've actually been running into many, many people that um, seem this year to have a um, data crunching company that simplifies the process where they take this tremendous amount of data and then put it in, in a way uh, and in a form that uh, executives can make uh, strategical decisions instead of just being overwhelmed with too many pie charts. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's let's stay on this for a second. As an example, um, you know, GE is a giant company, but imagine all these smaller or mid-sized industrial manufacturing companies that um, you know probably have great competencies in manufacturing and distribution and the technologies that they've been working in for 10, 20, 30 years. And all around them, this trend of the Internet of Things and the digitization of the world is happening. How do they get on board in a way that they're not left behind? That's really a great opportunity to say, um, why don't we um, identify the right group of startups and entrepreneurial partners who can be our canaries in the coal mine, if you will, to help us see what's coming and to, to understand the trends that matter to us, and then to also be um, our partners to um, take some of the risk um, in terms of us experimenting with uh, creating smart products or creating um, smart um, smart systems. And... and uh, it, it, you know, I'll give you a, an example of a, a, an Ohio-based company that's uh, in a very old line manufacturing business of making dispensary equipment. They're recognizing that uh, that dispensing equipment should actually be sold to their customers with options for software and services so that uh, the customer can monitor those dispensing uh, systems uh, in, in, in a better way. And this a dispensary equipment company needs to find partners, and this is what they're looking for, to basically develop the software and uh, sensing systems that could be uh, a new business model for them. And it actually becomes a new growth opportunity for them. And they recognize they can't do it alone. So they're, they're in the process of uh, you know, finding partners to help them do it uh, for them and with them. You know, one of my favorite tools is uh, AFTTT, If This Then That, and uh, I'm really shocked that every now and again I'll mention that to somebody and say, what the heck is that? And basically it's just a, it, it's a web portal. You go there and it's just got literally tens of thousands of recipes and like if, if you're – if this happens on your phone, then something else is going to happen. So if I take a, a picture with my phone, it'll automatically back that picture up to my hard drive, not to Google+. Um, sounds like a small thing, but it's a huge thing because it's a, it's, the, it's a different way of thinking. And I think what's fascinating about this book is getting people to understand the massive opportunity of thinking differently. Do you feel that uh, people are, are, you know, they're coming on board but they're coming on board at the wrong angle or they're they're coming on board not fully uh, understanding it so that they're not able to maximize the, the potential for success? 
let's talk, I guess, specifically around the larger corporations. I do a lot of work with mid-sized and larger companies. And, you know, I think if you talk to people on the front line of the innovation activities, there, there are definitely, um, you know, there's no shortage of creative, innovative people inside large companies. Um, so the, the real barrier isn't so much their mindsets. Um, it's, I think, more of the systems and, and reward, uh, the cultures and reward systems that are in place in these large companies. Everything about a large company is focused on optimizing a complex machine for brand building, efficient distribution, and growth. And all of those systems are the things that stand in the way of more disruptive, experimental, higher risk opportunities there that are inherent in these kinds of activities. So what I actually find is uh, the challenge is uh, unleashing the um, creative people that are within these large companies and, and enabling them to uh, uh, you know, convince senior management of a new way of working and creating some quick wins to, to make that happen. Um, but it, it's absolutely a battle that, that I see it time and time again that there's this maturity curve that um, you know, it starts with we can do it all ourselves to we'll do a little bit of transactional work um, and you know, we'll license something and then somebody has a bad experience and it, and it falls back. It's a, it's a pendulum swing. Or they'll say, let's go set up a Silicon Valley um, outpost. We'll put three people there and look for cool startups. And the first time they have a bad quarter, that gets shut down. So um, you know, the, the real key is to, to, to think of this more as a journey. And, and it takes a sustained effort. But um, what gives me a lot of encouragement in spite of those frustrations is I see um, some very large companies like Jarden, Cisco, Johnson & Johnson, um, Lowe's, um, a number of large companies that are um, embracing these concepts. And uh, I, I think uh, what will happen is in the next, say, five years, that uh, it, it, the market's going to um, drive this because it, it'll get to the point where um, there, there'll be a burning platform. That it, you know, it, It's hard to innovate when you're healthy and your back's not against the wall, and that's what some of these companies are doing now. It, it will be uh, easier to innovate when um, you're really struggling and getting left behind because uh, you didn't move fast enough. And th that's the thing that's mind-boggling about being in business today. Things are changing so rapidly. There's a lot of disruption happening. I mean, let's look at Google and the stuff they do to disrupt different segments uh, just to get people to understand. It's like, look at guys, if you don't innovate and change, we're going to come in and wipe you out. And uh, they've gone to the point where they put in amazingly um, high bandwidth uh, fiber optics into different communities to show how you can actually grow the economy of a community just by having massive bandwidth. And that's not Google inventing that. That's South Korea doing it like 15 years ago and saying, well, you know, every citizen should have more bandwidth than anybody else in the world so that they can innovate and be leaders in whatever they want to be innovators and leaders in. And they've done that. And they're way ahead of the curve. I mean, they've got the infrastructure, they've got the people that get it. Now it's catch-up time for North America and Europe, saying, oh my goodness, we need to have these similar infrastructures. Now they're scrambling. So it's a similar situation where you've got a, a paradigm shift happening in, in um, basically every industry with this particular uh, strategy. Uh, and whoever gets in first is going to benefit tremendously. Yeah, I think uh, you're touching on, um, you know, it, it would be a, a good conversation in itself, but uh, you know the, the the whole topic of technology policy. Uh, you know, we, we we obviously in North America are big believers in, in the free market approach. There's something to be said though for um, you know a, a 
a technology strategy for for the region and the nation that uh, you know would keep us from from falling behind. But uh, I don't think we're going to change that. You know, you brought up Google, though. I think that's a that's a great example to me of, you know, here's a company that obviously continues to grow and, and is a very innovative company, um, recognizes that um, they are maturing into a very large, complex company and are doing everything in their power to make sure that they don't become another GE or another Cisco or another Bell Labs. And, uh, you know, the most recent uh, example of that is how they reorganized into what they now called Alphabet, where um, you know the, the the core businesses where they're making money today, like Google AdWords, are in one part of the business, and the um, the moonshot businesses like uh, Astro Teller's uh, X Labs, that are that are uh, you know doing driverless cars and and uh, uh, you know even much crazier things, are now off into separate divisions. Very interesting to see, you know, Google's just launched, just announced their uh, first quarter results. And for the first time, you can see how much money they're making on the Google ad side and how much money they're losing on the Moodshot side. And, uh, but I give Google a, a lot of credit because they, they, they are, in spite of being a public company, are saying that we have to continue to um, focus on disrupting ourselves. And, and that really is, isn't just about their employees. It's about them you know, buying and working with startups as part of these moonshot deals, um, but, but recognizing uh, they need both. In fact, uh, another thing Google just announced here in the past couple of weeks is uh, an internal um, incubator program where they were losing so many entrepreneurs to startups, employees to startups, that um, they said, well, let's fund our own employees to be part of disrupting ourselves and uh, give them seed funding and let them leave their day jobs um, and, uh, and try to build things within Google. So it's, time will tell whether that works, but it's another experiment and another example of this need to, uh, you know, to uh, manage that paradox of optimizing what we have and then destroy what we have to create tomorrow's business. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I know for a fact that um, G had a... a a similar thing where a whole division, the th three key people, the coders and, and thinkers, left GE, started their own company um, that they wanted to build. And, and GE couldn't give them enough money. It's like, well, we'll give you more money. We'll give you more freedom. It's where a large organization hadn't read your book and didn't get that the strategy was, wow, okay, that's amazing. We're behind you 100%. We'll provide you with all the seed capital to start your company, and you still get to own 100% of it, but let's keep the relationship going. If they'd done that, they would have been, you know, five years later, they would have been way, way, way ahead of the curve. Now they're having to hire this company at massive expense as a completely different entity, and that company has the ability to go to the competition and offer the same service. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example. Um, it, you know, if you look at the way m too many companies look at this today, now it's changing, but but historically, companies will either say um, we need to do it all ourselves, and, and even a company as great as 3M, which is uh, you know uh, has a history of innovation and I think uh, it really has it in their DNA, um, hasn't really embraced the partnering movement. Um, so there's one school of thought that says you know we we need to grow it all ourselves if it means setting up a separate group of of employees to do that will do it, but it's still going to be internal. And then you have the other extreme, which is, um, you know, we can't be innovative, so we're going to focus on the core and we're going to acquire and license um, ideas from startups. And uh, that will be the way that we uh, 
innovate at the other end? And, and my answer to that is, um, uh, is both of those are right and both of those are wrong. And, and I think the example you just gave is a good example of that hybrid approach where doing it all yourself isn't enough. Yes, you need that degree of separation, um, you know, the right balance of integration and separation of internal breakthrough efforts so that you don't let the corporate antibodies kill it prematurely. But you can't do it alone because ultimately you're still trying to manage it within that parent company. And uh, for all the reasons I already shared, um, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be the exception and not the rule uh, succeeding that way. Conversely, if all you're doing is buying and acquiring, then you're not reverse engineering what you want and you're paying a premium. So um, your, your example is a great one of, uh, of uh, you know, seeding things on the outside. Um, and, th and there's different ways to do that. Um, but basically, it's about partnering with startups and entrepreneurs with a string attached. Um, I talk about in my book, um, inside in, inside out, and outside in as models of incubation where companies might be embedding entrepreneurs directly into the company to create startups with them um, inside, um, to, to take ideas and people and push them to the outside, um, e either formally outside the company or, or with a string or partnering with accelerators and outside groups. There's, there's no one size fits all. But it, it's about um, finding the right model for you and, and, for, the, and it, for the right projects. That, you know, it is situational. The right ways to partner with startups so that uh, you know, they're taking the risks and doing the things they're good at in the early stage incubation and definition of the opportunities. The company's involved enough so that when it starts taking hold, they can take the leadership role when it comes to scaling it and integrating it back into the company. Now I want to dig down into the book a little bit here. You know, there, there's uh, in part two, the chapter six, seven, eight, and nine: discover, define, incubate, and integrate. Is that really the formula that you're looking for, and is that the order that you should be looking at it? I, I put a framework in there, quite frankly, just to provide some logic to it. And and I, you know, what I don't want to promote is the idea that there's a prescriptive how-to in in all of this work that. You know, innovation will never be a linear process, nor should it be. Um, I think just, you know, it, it is all about, um, you know, the right intersections of consumer need, business opportunity, and, and technology. And uh, it's, it's, it's very iterative, just like the startup world um, is. So th this framework is really around just giving companies a roadmap to think differently about how they engage with startups and entrepreneurs from beginning to end. And uh, what's... what's um, I would say the common themes across those four areas of discover, define, incub incubate, and integrate are um, it's, it's, they're all iterative, so they all have um, build, test, and learn cycles to them. It's not one time through. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're de-risking and, and, and validating as you go, um, and, and it has elements of lean startup built into it. Um, but the other thing that it has built into it is that partnering approach from the beginning. Um, and that's... that's a little discomforting to some corporate executives and even entrepreneurs to say, often a company will develop the strategy and the idea and then look for somebody who can execute it for them or, um, you know, or uh, build it for them. And uh, what, what this is about is actually um, engaging with these startups and entrepreneurs, even when you're developing your strategy so that uh, you can see what's coming and you can get an early read into uh, market inflections and technology disruption um, uh, opportunities or challenges, and uh, actually use that to inform your strategy. And 
and, and actually engaging with startups and entrepreneurs even in the ideation phases. And J&J, as I mentioned, was an example of that where we don't have to have it all figured out in a spec grid before we engage with you. If it's a proven partner um, or, or a partner that we've developed a, you know, a trusting relationship with, we can figure it out together because neither of us could figure it out alone. And, and uh, even doing business model uh, innovation together and figuring out how you're going to make money together. Um, those are things that aren't normally part of a collaboration agreement, but in the co-creation model need to be because you can't look at it transactionally. You have to look at it as um, you know, true shared risk and reward. Um, you know, when you were putting this book together for you, what was your aha moment where something really crystallized for you? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, this was my first book and, uh, it, you know, you always hear that it's a journey and it certainly was for, for me. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of it, um, it's the book I wanted to write, but it wasn't the book I started out writing. Um, and, and one thing that was a real aha for me was actually a personal, uh, recognition that, um, I'm very passionate about um, you know this more transformative innovation. Uh, I've I've been a VP of new product development. I've been a senior VP and a GM of a business. So I've I've been on the corporate side. I've been a VC, and, and I've run startups. Um, and uh, I hadn't been very passionate about the core business innovation, and partly because I I figured companies were doing that pretty well, and I was putting my effort more towards let's help companies with reinvention and uh, you know rethinking where they want to go in the future. Um, one of my big ahas was that if you uh, approach that as a corporation as um, an either or, that, that, you know, focus on just disruption or transformative innovation and not linking it and, and recognizing that it's interdependent with the core business, then that's what causes those pendulum swings. And, and I actually, when I was uh, writing the book and, and initially talking about it, um, wondering why I was um, having some trouble getting companies to embrace some of the concepts and, uh, and the ones who did didn't seem to embrace it um, with, uh, you know, the commitment that, that I knew it was going to take. And I think it came down to, for me, the recognition that core innovation, you know, the day-to-day the -day that you need and transformative innovation are actually two sides of the coin. They, they seem like opposites, but they are absolutely interdependent on each other. And we need to then be thinking about as we're reinventing our next business as a corporation, um, how can we do that in a way that uh, we have a vision for where we might want to go, but we are um, experimenting in our core business to help us get there. And that we are, um, you know, making sure that as we're, in, you know, inventing and disrupting our current businesses, that um, we leverage the talents and the resources in new ways of the core business. If we, if we don't recognize that interdependency, it, it doesn't work. And that for me was a, was a big revelation. Hmm. Well, and, 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 you know, for people reading the book, that's where they're going to have conniptions. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what's one thing that our listening audience can do today to, you know, start in this direction, this path? And, and because it's what I love about this book is it's 100 percent relevant to large organizations and it's 100 percent relevant to small organizations and it's bringing the two together to make a more powerful uh basic economic engine yeah I, it is exciting um no matter what what role you're in in this new uh this new era you know um you know we've talked a lot about organizational challenges and and inertia but but 
it, it does come down to at an individual level. You know, individuals really can have a, a, a big impact here, and it, and it does start with mindset. So I think whether you're a, a startup entrepreneur or um, a corporate innovator, um, forcing yourself out of your built-in assumptions um, is one of the first steps. Uh, and it's really a core concept of the lean startup movement is challenging and testing assumptions and not, you know, you know, not believing uh, as a given things that uh, you've taken as a given in the past because the, the world's changing. And, uh, and, and the things that you sort of take as a given are, are uh, you know, if you say, take them as fact and others recognize that uh, that's a false assumption, uh, you're going to be left behind. So at a personal level, you can do things like um, exposing yourself to, uh, to new relationships. If, uh, you know, if you're a, a corporate executive, I'm working with a, a banking team, and, and just trying to get them to actually engage in uh, new discussions, not just with startups, but with um, creative thinkers who are outside of the banking industry, um, to get entrepreneurs um, and startups um, to build relationships, not just with other like-minded people, but to build relationships with people who might bring more of a more business acumen or more uh, of a logic and um, experience to um, to what they're doing. There's a, there's a trend, for example, with some of the companies that I'm promoting this concept with, of reverse mentoring, where millennials are coaching boomers and um, uh, entrepreneurs are coaching corporate executives in the ways of digital disruption. So those new you know those new relationships um, really. I, I really believe um, you know work both ways. Um, corporations can become more entrepreneurial from the outside in by working with entrepreneurs, and uh, entrepreneurs and, and startups can um, become better business people and you know better um, able to actually grow their innovations if they um, you know recognize that there's a lot they can learn from uh, people who have a different background than they do. Where can people go to learn more? Uh, well, great. I guess a great place to start would be uh, the website for the book, which is uh, collectivedisruption.com. Uh, book's also available on uh, Amazon.com uh, in hardcover. We're just launching a paperback here in, in a week. And uh, there's also an, an ebook Kindle available. And, uh, and then my uh, business is called Venture2, uh, Venture and the number two, and we're at Venture2.com. And uh, our work is uh, in helping mostly large companies um, build innovation capability and connecting to the uh, startup and entrepreneurial ecosystem. After reading a book like this, it, it's almost like a given that if you're a business coach or you're, you're creative anyway, that you should get the book, um, but maybe do a slight shift in the way that you're dealing with your businesses. Because I think there's so many organizations out there that are desperate for this answer and have no idea it exists. Yeah, the great news is it's uh, it, it can be done. Uh, that's you know one of the things I wanted to do with the book is to shine a light on companies that are actually figuring out a way. So I, I'm I'm an optimist. I, I am so excited about where things are going, and what the opportunities are. So um, it, it it can be scary, but uh, boy, what a great time to be involved in innovation. We've been chatting with Michael. Collective disruption: How corporations and startups can co-create transformative new business. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. 
follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.